podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The tenth time they've made it. They've won a playoff campaign and they've done it a win And for the first time in 74 years, Brentford will play in the top flight of English football. And he puts it in. Sergei Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Elam Road podcast. Just before we get into today's episode, if you haven't listened already to our end of season review with Jay Harris and our special episode with Brentford's head of content and head of marketing, go check both of those out. They're now live across all of our platforms. Feedback for those have been great so far. So thanks for that. And remember, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channels, leave a rating and follow us on Twitter on at the Elam Road. So today... We're going to have a discussion about the current state of the Premier League and life as a fan outside the top six. And I'm delighted to be joined online by football finance expert and host of the Price of Football podcast, Kieran Maguire. Kieran, pleasure to have you on the podcast, mate. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much for the invite. Uh, Really looking forward to this. Perfect. We'll just get straight into it then. My my first question is before we get into sort of the nitty gritty stuff, I just want you you to kind of maybe explain how big the current financial gap is between the top six and the rest of the Premier League. Um. If, if we take a look at, I think there's there's two elements. There's there's money coming in and money coming out. And on average, um, a team in the sneaky six, I think that's the best way of describing them, given uh, that they were behind both Project Big Picture and Super League, both of which, in my opinion, cards on the table, I thought were absolute abominations. Um, but the average revenue gap is £300 million compared to the clubs in the other 14. Um, and it and on occasions, it can be far, far higher than that. So Manchester City have the highest revenue in the Premier League in 21-22. That's on the back, of course, winning the Premier League, uh, getting to I think they've got the semi-finals, didn't they, of the uh, of the Champions League, which is becoming increasingly lucrative and, and will continue to be so and will actually drive further gaps. And then at the other end of the table, if we, if we take a look at the club with the uh, the lowest income, that was Burnley. On, on 123. So it was the thick end of half a billion pounds. And effectively, uh, yeah, for, for every one pound that uh, Burnley were generating, City were generating about £4.80. So th- there's a big gap in terms of the money coming in. And given the nature of football is that it's a talent game and the talent follows the money, it also means there's significant gaps going out uh, with regards to wages. So at the, at the highest end, we've got Manchester United, wage bill of 384 million. And we had uh, we had Brentford on 68. So they had, what, you know, around about a fifth, between a fifth and a quarter of the revenue, sorry, of, of the wage bill of Manchester United. I, I appreciate it was the first year in the Premier League, but Burnley, uh, who had been fairly well established, theirs was 92, again, less than a quarter of that of Manchester United. And then the other big metric, which I guess fans focus on, given that um, the the whole of the football world appears to have become transfer junkies. It's the only way I can describe it, is the, is the cost of the squads. And you've got the likes of Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, um, at or just above or just below a billion pounds, and then you've got other clubs with squads which are costing. Um, again, if we look at look at the case of Brentford, hundred and one, um, Norwich, I think, were eighty eight, and so on. So there is there is huge inequality um, within the Premier League, and yet that 
doesn't seem to get any attention. Yeah, when, when I hear fans moaning about inequality, it tends to be Liverpool fans moaning about the two clubs that generate more money than them, as opposed to the inequality with the 17 clubs below. And, and I guess I think that's, that's reflective of a much broader issue um, in society, in that we all nominally want fairness, but nobody's prepared to define fairness. And when pushed, it tends to mean that you want to have more money or at least the same amount of money and you want everybody else to have less. And if, if you try to do that 92 ways, uh, as we have in football in this country, um, that's, uh, that's, that's more difficult than doing a Rubik's Cube underwater wearing a Brockman's <laughs> outfit. Yeah, well, I, I was listening to a, a podcast on the overlap and Gary Neville was kind of talking about something where he, he was saying that all these clubs, the top six have so much money, there should be a kind of a fair split between the rest of the pyramid. But we, we can get onto that a bit later. You talked about what the um, the big clubs are doing in terms of spending billions in transfer windows. The wage bill is, in comparison, astronomically higher compared to a club like Brentford or, or Brighton. Um, how do you do you think that the teams can compete knowing that the top six are so far financially ahead? Uh, Is it realistic to think that a team like Brighton and Brentford can continue what they're doing in terms of, well, more more in Brighton's case these days, in terms of picking up these gems that no one knows about and then selling them on in the next next year for double what they paid? Um, I think it will become increasingly difficult because what we are seeing is an ever-expanding data pool with regards to player talents. And as that data pool increases the bigger clubs will be able to buy that data from a variety of sources. And, and there's there's two things with, with data. There's, there's A, the costs of putting it together. And there's B, understanding it. And I think that's where both Brighton and Brentford have had an edge over some of the bigger clubs. But we're still talking as if, you know, I've, I've supported Brighton for over 50 years. Um, they, they finished sixth. Now, you know, Liverpool finished fifth. And if you read social media, you think there's been a death in the family. Um, so I think we have to be, you know, how, how do you go about defining success? The chances of another Leicester City in 2016 taking place, I think are, which were, which were pretty low to begin with. I mean, that's why, that's why they're at 5,000 to one at the start of the season. Um, you wouldn't be able to get similar odds today because... The big clubs, their first reaction to that was, how, how dare, how dare Leicester City take... And it, and it wasn't the fact that they won the Premier League. It was the fact that Leicester City took one of the Champions League players, which sorry, places, which the bigger clubs believe are theirs by rights. So the response of the Premier League, uh, big clubs, was to say, we want a greater share of the overseas TV money. And if we don't get it, we'll go off and form our own little competition. And, and you know, they, their bluff has now been called on that. But they did manage to extract concessions from the other clubs um, in, in getting an even bigger slice. You put that, you know, they, they're getting more money from the Premier League. We're moving to the Swiss model in the Champions League in 24-25. And people will say, well, hold on, six into four doesn't go particularly well. We've got Newcastle now, so seven into four, there'll be more competition. There will be, every year, there will be five teams in the Champions League. I say nine nine times out of ten because of the way that the additional four places are given. If an English team wins the Europa League, um, then potentially we could have six English teams in, in the Champions League. And once you've got that, that ball rolling, it, it, it tends to become quite self-perpetuating. So I, I don't see 
any club, you know, the fact that we're that you and I are both celebrating our respective clubs being in the top half of the Premier League and is it going to be the most exciting two or three months for me in my life going to Uzbekistan on a Thursday night? Absolutely. <laughs> but then you have to temper that back and it's because I, I, one of my friends is a Spurs fan and he says, I'm actually quite pleased that you qualified for the Europa League because we don't want it. It's beneath us. <laughs> and you go, well, hold on, you know, let's 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 have a quick check of the Spurs trophy cabinet. <laughs> and, and it's and, and that this strange mindset that we have in football that unless you're winning one of the uh, top echelon competitions that they're, they're not worth effectively competing for, it is is something I find bewildering. And I think if I was a sociologist or, or an anthropologist. Uh, I, I would I would have an absolute field day in, in terms of uh, behavioural issues in in respect of the modern football fan. It, it sounds like you're an well. It sounds like that sense of entitlement that gripes me from the top six fans is just honestly. Sometimes I, I listen to podcasts and I hear people on the internet and you know Chelsea fans throwing the toys out the pram because they finished in the bottom half for the first time in how many years and all of this. The sense of entitlement amongst top six fans is just beyond belief. Sometimes, but we can we can talk about that because I could go on for hours about that, but. Um, you mentioned Leicester. It's 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 every fan's dream to 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 do a Leicester. I mean, for me and you, for you and I, it's a uh, it, it's just you, I can't even. I, I was delighted to be finishing eighth in the Premier League yeah. this season. Um, well, as a speaking not as a football finance expert, but speaking as a fan, you just said that the chances are pretty much close to nil. What what does that make you feel like? I know I know Europe for Brighton is a massive achievement, but as such as the nature of football, you you want to progress. But if you're thinking to yourself that that's never going to happen. It's just it's just a dream. What, what does that do for you as a fan? Um, I, I, I try to be realistic. Ha- having seen us finish 91st in consecutive seasons um, in the late 90s, uh, th- this, this is our Everest. And it, it's great to be there. And I'm going to look um, and, and enjoy every moment of. But yeah, I'm I'm quite an old bloke. I'm old enough to remember Derby County, Aston Villa, Nottingham Forest, Everton, Blackburn Rovers, um, all of those clubs winning the top division, the likes of Ipswich Town being the runners-up and worthy runners-up as well. Um, And I also take a look at the very first Premier, because football didn't exist, of course, until 1992. But if you take a look at the very first Premier League table and you look where Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs... Manchester City all finished in that year, and you go, why are they the big six? Because they they have what what they've managed to do. They managed to sort of surf the wave in the sense of um, Manchester United had the the class of ninety two at, at the right time, and 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 Sir Alex Ferguson, no doubt, you know, he, he, nobody's nobody's saying he's, he's not done a bad job. He's done a fantastic job, but they they've managed to. Uh, use that as a megaphone to increase publicity. Um, Liverpool, yeah, people saying, well, yes, Liverpool really being a successful club. They've, they've won the Premier League once in 30 years. This is Liverpool, you know. And so, and, and then when, when, you, when you actually take a look at the numbers uh, and you say, well, why, why are people getting so angry? But as, as a Brighton fan, yes, it, it, saddened, it saddens me because it saddens me that if I took a look at the fixture list and I took a look at the three teams which have come up from the, the championship. And my first my first objective is, I think we've got a good chance of 17th or better. <laughs> and that's, 
That's sad. Uh, mm. And you might say, well, you know, am I being unduly pessimistic? Well, I don't think many Leicester City fans at the start of last season thought they were going to get relegated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yeah they had Madison and Tielemans and uh, Jamie Vardy and uh, you know and other players they spent an awful lot of money on. So uh, it just takes a, a, a bad run, and, and you're you're within that. You know, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it part of me it saddens that seventeenth is still my first objective. <laughs> I think you just got. I think it's, it's saddening, but you just got to be realistic with the amount of money yeah. in the game now. It's just you, the, you, there's no way that a team can compete without something like state ownership coming in. Um, but you know, who who knows what's going to happen with that story? What do you what do you think about sort of the Qatari bid for United? What do you think about state ownership? Um, we, we we've got state ownership of Harrods. We've got state ownership of Sainsbury's. We've got state ownership of the Shard. Football is actually football is actually a very cheap industry. Um, it's a very small industry, but it's got an amazingly big mouth. <laughs> and the fact that you you can buy Manchester United for five billion pounds, you go, oh, that's absolutely amazing price. Well, t- t- take a look at Apple. Apple's market capitalization on the New York Stock Exchange is three trillion, and this this is for a company that only produces. It's only, it's only got six products. Yeah, you could put every single Apple product on a desk. You go, well, that's it. That's all Apple sell, and uh, and it's worth you know a hundred to two hundred times more than Manchester United. And you go, well, wow, you know it. So, so I can understand it from the perspective of the uh, potential owners why they would want to do such a thing. Um, it uh, it gives them attention. Um, I, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't really buy into this concept of sports washing, because no. there are there are many many reprehensible regimes around the world. Mm-hmm. Some some in some in Asia, some in uh, sort of former Soviet Union places, Africa, South America, and we don't get to hear about all the the human rights abuses which are taking place there because they're not connected football, to, yeah. a, to, a, to a football club. So it, it's not. It's not sports washing that the owners are looking for. Um, it is getting attention. It is the opportunity to network. It is looking at a at a world beyond fossil fuels, um, and that does not mean that they should not be held to account for um, human rights issues. But again, there's sort of a bit of a I find there's a bit of a holier than thou attitude from 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 the Western press because mm. um, I'm. Yeah, we've got the World Cup taking place in 2026 in America. Well, if we've we've seen that, you know, I'm not getting on a soapbox here. We've seen what's happened to women's rights. Yeah, in, in, in yeah, Roe versus Wade has gone. We've we've seen what's happened to you know the "Don't Say Gay" from Ron DeSantis, uh, Guantanamo Bay, um, the number of yeah. You know, I'm, I'm I'm going to the states um, next week because I'm going to see the uh, the preseason event. Uh, you know, the, the uh, preseason tour for, for for Brighton and a few other clubs, including Brentford, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you look at the number of uh, deaths in America from shootings, and you go, nobody's saying that we shouldn't hold the World Cup in the US, but but, but there's a high high chance if you're a male or of a certain heritage, yeah, the highest chance of uh, being killed is is through a, through a shooting. So I think there's there's a lot of hypocrisy, um, and. I, I therefore don't have any more objection than I do to 
um, people from these countries or sovereign wealth funds from these countries buying other institutions. If if I really cared, um, as opposed to nominal outrage, I wouldn't put petrol in my car. Mm. Because every time every time I fill up my car, I'm contributing towards those regimes. Yeah. So so if if we really cared, we we do something. So, so football is a very convenient lightning rod for uh, moral outrage. Um, and again, yeah, we we could have a, a separate podcast, which which will take six hours to record, and then then the lawyers would probably cut it down to about five minutes. Um, if, if I if, if I say what I truly thought about some of them. <laughs> One of the one of the nations in, uh, coming into the game potentially is Qatar. I, again, going back to the sense of entitlement amongst the top six, the fans of Man United over, over the last sort of whenever the news broke that the Qataris were putting in a bid, and it's like end this horror show now. It's like you won bloody six trophies or whatever in the last in the last five years. You've had three, four, five, six Premier Leagues under the Glazers, and they're all, all outraged um, just because of this. Gone to not they've not been holding the standards that they've been at for the last. For the last few years, do do we have to accept as fans outside the top six that those six clubs slash seven clubs are always going to be successful financially and on the pitch? I mean, not well, we we don't have to accept it on the pitch, but financially, it's just the kind of reality, isn't it? They're global brands, whereas a Brighton and Brentford just aren't yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're we're, we're local clubs, and we should be proud of it. Um, do do I care that Brighton don't have a, a Singapore fan club? No, I don't. <laughs> So I'm I'm not I'm not particularly worried. You're absolutely right that 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 gap is going to be maintained. That gap is going to be enhanced. Um, we will see increasing efforts by the owners of those clubs to you know, finance rule one hundred and one. If something looks a bit strange, it's all to do with money and power. So if you take a look at Project Big Picture and Super League, all to do with concentration of power in the hands of fewer and fewer people and increased amounts of money for those people. Um, and all of the uh, all of the Lord Hawhaws who were claiming that Super League and PBP were good ideas, well, they've either not looked at the small print, or they're uh, they're being very uh, uh, very ambiguous with the truth. <laughs> lots of lots of noise around how well our two clubs are run. Uh, I remember you posting the financial accounts. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but Brentford were one of the only teams. I think they were the only team in London to turn a profit. I think. I know in 2022, both yeah. Brentford and West Ham made yeah. a profit. But yeah, I, I think Brentford are a, uh, are a shining example. Um, the, the club's got a long-term strategy. Uh, you know, you've got contacts at the club. I, I've been fortunate enough to to have been on conference calls with you know senior people at the club. And, and what impresses me is the level of professionalism um, and, and the fact that there is no sense of entitlement. There is a belief in the process. And it, if it doesn't work for two or three months, they don't press the panic button. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on the back of that, I think Brentford can and will continue to be successful by being smarter as opposed to being bigger. And, and that's all that you can do. Um, you know, we, we both know that you know, the respective owners, Tony Bloom and Matthew Benham, um, that they've got, they've got common links in terms of their backgrounds and, and their industry. Um, and that's, that's going back to uh, you know, understanding the data. Um, can, can, you, can, can, you, can you keep knocking them in from 30 yards, which is effectively what both clubs have done? I, I don't think you can continue that indefinitely. 
the more you practice at it, the, the the greater the chance you've got. So you speak about in doing it indefinitely. What's the concept? Do you think the consequence if that fails? What, what do you think? There's a backup plan for a team like Brentford or Brighton, or do you think? What, what do you think would be the? I guess the question is really what what's the biggest challenge for a team like Brentford or Brighton now that they're sort of on the precipice of? Well, you are in Europe. We're on the precipice of Europe. Fulham almost qualified last year. What's what's the biggest challenge? Um, the biggest challenge, I, I, I've got friends at uh, Burnley and I, and I remember it was only, what, four years ago that Burnley finished seventh in, in the Premier League. That is a fantastic achievement. They got next to zero credit for it at the same time. And in fact, if you take a look at the, the number of times that Burnley appeared live on television that year, um, under, the, under the, the mechanism that the Premier League uh, operate, you are guaranteed payment for 10 appearances. And then every appearance above that, you get an extra million pounds. So Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, and so on, you know, they're, they're, they tend to get in the sort of the high 20s. Well, Burnley were paid for seven live appearances. They actually only appeared seven times. Mm. Yeah, that, that, was the, that was the level of indifference. And great achievement by Sean Dyche. Um, he's, he's got a plan, he's got a strategy. But the problem that Brighton are going to face and prospectively Brentford could have to face is that normally you, you play a match at the weekend, given Mondays off, come into, come into training on Tuesday and you are working on the drills for the following weekend's match. So the data analyst will have done all of these work, you know, this, this team specialises in short corners, high press, and you work on that and you work on that and you work on that for four or five days and then you are prepared because it's, it's Chelsea or Liverpool. And that gives you a better chance than having no preparation. If you go into the Europa League or the Europa Conference, you play your match on a Sunday, you're given Mondays off, Tuesday light training. We've got a match on Thursday, lads. Wednesday, potentially, you could be traveling to the other country. You travel there or, or you, you get a bit, you get an opportunity to train at the ground to get familiarity with the ground on the Wednesday or the Thursday. You get an overnight plane back. You arrive home three or four o'clock in, o'clock in the morning on the Friday. So therefore, no training on Friday. You go in on Saturday. Okay, lads, these are the drills for tomorrow's match. Can you see that the preparation and that caused huge issues for Burnley. Burnley had a terrible start to the season when they were in the uh, when they were in the Europa League. And it was only when they were knocked out that their results improved. So my concern would be for, for the club I support, the club you support, is that absolute, absolutely fantastic. And the Europa Conference, you don't make money from it. It's, it is genuinely there for the fans. doesn't mean that it's bad because you talk to a West Ham fan. You, know, you, you, know, you look at the excitement the genuine excitement they got from winning that top and, and hats off to them. Um, and, and I would love to be in that position. But from the sustainability of the club in the Premier League, yeah, West Ham didn't have a good season. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, um, and, and that's the challenge. You don't get a lot of extra money from being in those competitions. If you go and spend a lot of money to in, increase the size of your squad, potentially you've got... You've got six matches in Europe. You then get knocked out. You've now got a bloated squad. You've got a bloated, bloated wage bill. Um, and you've got to then survive uh, in the Premier League for the rest of the season. So it's it's great. It's great for fans. I think also it's great for players. You know, players 
yeah, some some of the players for Brighton who've been there for a long time, you know, for, you know the likes of Lewis Dunk and Solly March and Pascal Gross, um, I'm absolutely made up for them. I'll be honest, I'm absolutely made up for me, and because. It, because we we do wear our badges of honour as football fans, so you know the seven one defeat away to Huddersfield on a Tuesday night, the five the four one four nil defeat at home to Darlington. This is payback, and we're going to absolutely love it. Um, but it, it's not necessarily good for the club long term. Could you you mentioned uh, that you don't get paid for Europa League, so it's the Europa League conference, so it's generally just for the fans. Could you maybe just spell out the sort of brackets of the finances that go through the Champions League, Europa League and Conference League? Yeah. Um, as far as the um, Champions League is concerned, you you get a you get an appearance fee of 15 million. You know, congratulations. Then that gets topped up because we, we have something which we refer to as the 10-year coefficient. And, and there's two coefficients. There's how well your country or your league has done in the last 10 years. And then we've got how, how well the club has done. And each club uh, earns points throughout their European, I hate to use this word, journey. Okay, I'm not on Love Island, but <laughs> I'll, I'll use it all the same. Um, and each club is, is ranked between 1 and 32. And as far as the, the Champions League is concerned, the, the best performing club, club in the last is it five or 10 years gets around about £32 million. And the club with the, the lowest coefficient gets one. In the... Uh, in the Europa League, it's probably about just over a quarter mm. of that in terms of the numbers. And in the Europa Conference, you can halve it again. So in the in the Champions League, if you get a win, 2.7, 2.8 million euro. If you get a win in the conference, probably about 700k in terms of euro. That's in the group stages. And you get a third of that. So you get 200k for a draw, uh, nothing for a defeat. And in the conference, probably half those figures again. So you know, West Ham probably might have made around about 15 million last season. For the whole for the whole campaign? For the whole campaign. And then you think, you've got to pay your wages and your bonuses out of that. If you if you won the Champions League, so who, how, how much would have Man City made from, from their campaign this year? Um well, the, the previous season, when Real Madrid defeated Liverpool, Real Madrid made 119 million euro in prize money. Mm-hmm. They let, let's let's park COVID, you know, because we're now in a, a non-COVID environment. On top of that, you've got six home matches um, at, uh, at at the Bernabeu. Um, realistically, you're probably looking at four to five million per match so that's another 25 so that takes us up to what 140 bonuses kick in from sponsors so we're probably talking around about 160 170 million euro which is which is more money than you know Brighton or Brentford made from the whole of their season in the Premier League and then if you win the Champions League you qualify for the European Super Cup it's 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 not an it's not a tournament people get excited about but money, <laughs> money-wise, and because of the way that UEFA are operating, you also qualify for the 2025 FIFA World Club Cup Championship. You know this 32-team mm-hmm. monstrosity that, as far as I'm aware, nobody's actually asked for, apart from the owners who want more money. So it, it, it is substantial. Um, 
again, there will be costs to take to take out of those revenues. And I think Manchester United are sort of famously, if they don't qualify for the Champions League, players have to take a twenty five percent pay cut. So you know, it, it's it is it's not pure profit, but it. It's 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 a good night out. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a good night out. If it seems quite, it seems fairly insignificant though. Like if West Ham only made fifteen million, and you said that there's other costs that you have to factor into that to balance it out, it just seems fairly. I, I do you think it's a small number compared to sort of Chelsea spending two hundred fifty million and three hundred million in one window? Newcastle spent two hundred fifty million last year. Um, if you are a club in Austria or Poland or Denmark, that's a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we have all become um, compromised by the wealth of the Premier League because the Premier League is generates twice as much money as the Bundesliga, Serie A, uh, La Liga. It generates four times as much money as, as the French First Division. And it would be far more than that had it was it not for the fact that PSG of, of themselves got um, you know, fairly fairly wealthy owners. So um, I think for the what you might call the, the central and east European countries of Europe, if you're if you're uh, the side which has finished you know fourth or fifth in the Portuguese first division, um, it, it's still substantial because the average wage in in the Premier League, and, and here I'm going to use average. Um, as a medium, as opposed to a mean, because the uh, because <laughs> you know, the m- means are distorted in the Premier League, is, is around about fifty seven thousand pounds a week. Now that's yeah, probably three times, mm-hmm. even four times what you can expect to earn in, in the Portuguese league or the, or the Austrian league, and so on. Um, so therefore, it, it is significant. It, it can certainly move the dial. I'm, I'm, I've, I've got. I think I've got the, the best job I could ever hope for in that I, I get a chance to talk to people from clubs and institutions all over Europe and all over the world. And when they start quoting me some of the numbers, you realise that, that the Premier League has has detached itself from reality mm. as far as the finances of world football are concerned. Are you in any way worried about the amount of money that flows specific, particularly through the Premier League at the moment? I feel like you know, with with Man City, they have endless money. With Newcastle, they now have endless money. With Man United, potentially, they could have endless money too. Chelsea have billionaire owners. Is there is there a worry that the, there's too much and that the the other fourteen are going to get priced out sooner rather than later? Um, I'm I'm not for, for for all of its faults. Financial fair play does act as an anchor. Mm-hmm. It does restrict a club's ability to pay. We, we saw. Um, in the pre-financial fair play era with both um, Abramovich and Mansour, the level of spending. And um, for, for my sins, one of one of the exercises I was asked to do, uh, I was actually asked to do it by The Athletic uh, just over a year ago, was to work out a, um, a CPI, an inflation index for the football industry. So, so I, I did that with an academic colleague of mine and we sort of nerded out and so on. Um, but the... The three most expensive transfer windows were Chelsea in the immediate post-Abramovich era. Mm-hmm. And uh, positions four, five, and six were Manchester City in, in the immediate for, uh, continuation of the Mansour acquisition because there was no FFP to act as a break. Now, we've seen with Newcastle, yes, they've spent big by Newcastle standards. They've 
certainly spent a sizable amounts, um, but they've they've not blown everybody else out of the water. And, and Saudi Arabian money, we, we've seen, you know, with Cristiano Ronaldo being paid one hundred and eighty million pounds a year in Saudi, where there is no financial fair play. Well, you know, that's the opportunity that uh, owners would have if if there was a non FFP era. So, I, I think the system works as well as you could reasonably hope. There will be accountants and lawyers who will try to circumvent it, as we've, we've seen historically and we will see in the future. Um, and, and then it's up to the authorities just to keep their eye on the ball. I, I mentioned it at the start, but I, I was watching the, the Crystal Palace overlap, the one with Steve Parrish. I don't know if you, I don't know if you watched it, um, but they were talking about how money should be distributed evenly across across the pyramid. Um, you've got the people that earn the most money, that generate the most money. There were questions about where that money is coming from and whose money it actually is, um, because they're they're the ones they're the anchors of the Premier League. They're, they're the kind of the Godfathers, to use the word that Gary Neville used, um, in in a, in a very Gary Neville way. But um, guess. what's your what's your thoughts on that? What's your thoughts on that kind of take? Um. Tr- Trying to work out a fair distribution of wealth in football is an impossible challenge. Um, now, again, for, for the sake of transparency, um, I presented to the fan-led review on the back of that. I, I've got to know people in DCMS uh, in terms of you know working for the white paper. I put together some, you know, written some articles on behalf of of the government with regards to that um it's it's tricky uh we've got to decide what we want but of course nobody wants to be seen to be making that decision because if you say well actually we want to go for an nfl style model where uh revenues are pulled so i so i i was asked i was tasked with what would football look like if we did this that and the other um so one of which was to take the the NFL model where gate receipts are split 60-40. Mm-hmm. So the, the home team keeps 60%, 40% is pooled uh, and is then distributed by the Premier League. You've got centralization of merchandising um, and, and so on. Um, and I said, well, this, this is what we end up with. And, and Manchester United and Chelsea and Manchester City and Arsenal, they would still be at the top of the table, but clearly the, the gap would be low, lower. And effectively, somebody said, Took one look at that and says, yeah, "Bloody communist!" Um, <laughs> okay, oh, okay, hold on. You asked me to do it, <laughs> so, um, so that that's what we've seen. And if, if you take a look at the uh, the comments from Angus Kinnear when the the white paper first came out, and he started talking about you know, Maoist collectivism <laughs> um, style regimes, and going, "Well, you're saying that, Angus, but yeah." What happens if Leeds were relegated to the Championship? Because you're going to take a you're going to take a massive hit in terms of your revenues, in terms of fair distribution, um, and and that's now of course come to fruition. Um, there's there's no there's no easy way of of distributing. I understand you know, you know Red Gary, uh, who, who I like a lot. Um, I think he's uh, he, he's never dull. Um, <laughs> He said it in his words. He said, "Why can't people just be decent?" I think what happened to decency or something along those lines. And to be fair, I mean, Steve Patrick. I, I recommend anyone listening to the podcast now to go and watch that because I thought it was a really great chat, just about sort of um, Crystal Palace's place in the Premier League, and and it, we t- talked a lot about pro- Project Big Picture as well. But yeah, he's he's. I think his 
very idealistic to think that we can all pull together and somehow figure this out and lower the gap when the others are already so far ahead. Yes. Um, and the others also are in, entitled to that gap yeah. to a certain extent because Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester United and Manchester City and so on, they have driven the growth of the Premier League. Um, I think the Premier League's distribution model in the main is... I'm looking for two two elements. I'm, I'm looking for incentivization and I'm looking for uh, you know, egalitarianism in the sense that you know, having having a share is good, giving people the incentive to be ambitious is good. And and that is reflected in the fact that you know, Anfield now going up to 61,000 capacity. We've got Manchester um, uh, Manchester City expanding their stadium. Spurs have moved the news. So the, the incentive of if we do this, we can keep all of that money ourselves. I, I understand that. And that's going to improve facilities for fans. Um, and if that didn't exist, what would we have? Have you know, Spurs could still be playing at White Hart Lane, which uh, I, I, as an away fan, I, I would probably prefer. Um, but... I think you share that with a lot of Brentford fans. Uh, got my my co-host who's not here today absolutely hates that the new Tottenham Stadium, the away end. I I don't I didn't mind it this year, but we did win. It, it, it's it's a it's a magnificent structure. Um, it is future proofed. It is making a lot of sense in, uh, in in the sense that football's a really dumb sport. Um, you know, my my local branch of Tesco's is open 363 days a year. How often is Brentford's new stadium? How often is Spurs' new stadium? So, but what Spurs have done, they said, yeah, we've got six nights of Beyonce. Yes, we've got you know three NFL matches. Well, that means that instead of having 25 open days, we've got 35 or 40. Given that Spurs make £800,000 a match from uh, catering sales, you, you you add on you know an extra ten of those eight hundred that's that's another eight million quid. You've then got the the amount that they'll be charging the you know the the music promoters and the NFL promoters to host those matches. It makes a lot of sense. And um, I, I was on a Spurs podcast recently, and they asked me to assess Spurs. And I said, well, t- let's take a step away from from a business point of view. I'd give Daniel Levy an A or an A plus mm-hmm. if, I, if I was grading him. You know, as a as somebody you know, as a teacher, and I grade finance reports all the time, I'd give him an A or an A plus. Um, I said, well, "What about the football?" He says, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm not here. I'm not qualified to talk about the football because I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't consider myself to have any um, additional uh, background in it than, than than anybody else in this room." Um, but I'd probably give it, you know, perhaps a C minus. Oh, well, you know, it's been absolutely rubbish. I said, "Well, you've, you've you've made the Champions League final. You've you've qualified for the Champions League on a regular basis, and let, let's just flip this." Where would you place the club which has the sixth highest wage bill in the Premier League for the last 10 years? Where do you think that they should finish each year? Go, well, six. Well, that's Spurs. <laughs> so, so, so what are you moaning about? You, you've actually overachieved, it could be argued, in many regards. Um, so, yeah, tricky, as always. Inter- I, don't, I don't want to carry on talking about Spurs because I don't want to remind you of, of your game at that stadium this year, which I think was the biggest fucking robbery I've ever witnessed in football. Um, were you in the away end? Um, well, it was actually it was, it was an incredibly emotional game because um, my my son in law had a brain tumor, 
and right. uh, he he had arranged uh, the the charity which was he was looking after him. They'd managed to get two tickets for this match in hospitality, so he bought them at a charity auction. And sadly, he was so ill he couldn't attend. So we were in the hospitality, uh, and we were watching it. And I was under instructions from my wife to shut it. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 part of the reason for that is because I disgraced myself at Griffin Park a few oh. years ago. Um, I taught, oh God, please apologize, I feel so bad. Yeah, Rob, who was the technical director. Rob Rowan. Um, Rob Rowan, yeah. So I, I taught Rob um, because he was doing his master's in sports directorship. And of course, you know, what, what tragically happened to him at such a young, young age as well. Um, and he'd said to me, if ever you're in need of a ticket, let me know. Well, in 2016-17, Brighton versus Brentford, it was in the second half of the season. We were running for promotion. Tickets disappeared straight away. And I I wasn't in the top tier Mm -hmm. of uh, of loyalty points. So I was in the second tier. So I won't be able to go. So I contacted Rob, and Rob very kindly got me two, two tickets for the director's box. I think they were actually Tony Bloom's tickets because Tony Bloom was in the away end. But yeah. that's, that's that's another story, which again could take a long time to answer. Um, and I went along with my wife, and my wife says, "Behave yourself," and that was fine because we were toilet. Um, you probably don't remember the match, but Brentford went two 0 up. Um, by far the better side. I had no issue. Um, Brighton got a goal back. I just sat on my sat on my hands. Um, Brentford got a third goal. Again, that was fine. Brentford got a penalty. Uh, our goalkeeper uh, saved the penalty. That was fine. Minutes ago, Brighton scored 3-2. Again, behaving myself. 97th minute. <laughs> we equalise. Toma Hamed, I think it's fair to say, I think the phrase, lost my shit, um, <laughs> came to mind. And the the, the, the Brentford player, the Bre- members of the squad who were not in the team that day, they were sat around and they're going, oh, just just quiet on it. And then there's me, who who's by under normal circumstances, I am the most meek and mild, you know, <laughs> dull. I, I, I tick all the boxes what you'd expect from a chartered accountant. Um, I, I was going to these twenty two and twenty three year old professional athletes. Bring it on, yo! Come on, <laughs> see you in the car park now. <laughs> and my wife's going. And so we were living in Manchester at the time. Um, and I think it's fair to say it was the quietest journey home I've ever had. I was in the doghouse for a long, long time after. I'm so glad you told that story because we on this on this podcast we get every guest to tell their funniest Brentford story. But I figured I wouldn't ask you because I just didn't think you'd have one. Um, but no, that, that that would definitely be up there. Before the start of the new season, we're going to rank them. We've had some we've had some funny ones from the guests we've had on before. Uh, but no, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's really good. In ter- speaking of Brentford, I did because we kind of chatted about the whole Premier League. In terms of Brentford's place in the Premier League, how have we done from a financial perspective since coming up? And as a follow-up question, how much does it do for a team like Luton or, or Sheffield United or Burnley coming up from from the Championship? Um, there, there is there is talk about the promised land. There's all this talk about the 180 million pounds and the it's the end of the rainbow. When you come up, you have one good season as a rule. Um, and, and the reason for that is that you'll probably sign in your first season in the Premier League four or five players, and they'll, they'll be on decent wedge. But the players that have just come up from the championship, 
their pay, you know, they'll, they'll have step ups as far as their contracts are concerned, and they might have gone from say, you know, fifteen to thirty grand a week, and still, you know, they're, they're they're happy thirty grand a week. So, so on the back of that, um, Brentford in in that first season in the Premier League, um, they made twenty five million pounds worth of profit. That was the the highest, you know, and fantastic effort, and uh, and so on, um, and nothing but admiration. Um, second season, what tends to happen? is that those players who have now proven themselves in the Premier League, they come tap, tap, tapping at the door, or rather their representatives do, because the players don't like to do it. They come knock, knocking on the chief executive's door and say, well, yeah, my, my client is, uh, is, is a proven Premier League player. Um, you know, let's face it, the going rate's 50k a week. Mm-hmm. So you know, one-year contract extension, we want an extra 20 grand a week pay. And, and then, then the club's got an awkward decision. So, and all, and in that second season, of course, you've signed another four or five players again on Premier League wages. So in the second season, the money coming into the club doesn't ch- tend to change that much. But your wage bill and your your transfer costs go up because now you've got two years of recruitment in the Premier League. Um, if if we take a small club such as Crystal Palace, um, yeah, they've been in the Premier League now for what ten years. They made a profit in year one, and they've made losses in every subsequent year. If we take a look at Brighton, we made a profit in year one in twenty seven eighteen. We made operational losses every year since. Now you can cover those losses through player sales, but player sales are uh, they're volatile, they're erratic, and of course, if you're get into that habit of selling your best players, then that has impact upon league finish. That has impact upon potential uh, relegation and so on. So Brentford have done extremely well. Uh, As an outside observer, I've got nothing but admiration for their level of professionalism um, in in the boardroom and in in the finance office. I was listening to one of your podcasts recently. I don't know if you you remember what you're talking about, but... I was listening to an extract. You started talking about how when you get into the Premier League, you you become known in everywhere because, you know, Premier League is a global brand. Someone in Brazil will know about Brentford. They won't know where Wakefield is. Do you, do you, remember, do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Could you just, just, could you just run through that for no, for no one that's sort of listened to, to your podcast before? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do this podcast with a, with a stand-up comedian called Kevin Dane. Kevin is an absolutely fantastically professional presenter as well. So he, he's really assisted me. Uh, he, he makes me look very good. Uh, but it's but it's the fact that he's making me look because I, I know that I'm just sort of this I'm the useful dweeb as far as the, the show is concerned. Um, but one of the questions we had um, was, what is the biggest town or city in the country that, that has not had a professional football club? To which the answer is Wakefield, and people go, "Where's Wakefield? <laughs> somewhere somewhere north? Yeah, they sort of." Um, and people don't know where Wakefield is, and they, and they don't know the size. Yeah, the size of the population is about four times that of Burnley, who, who, do, who do have a uh, who do have a his, history and a heritage as far as football is concerned. So, so what you can do is is that you can leverage um, on on economic benefits um, on the back of that. So, when Brentford are playing at home, um, you know, you, you got you know that the away end is always going to be full mm-hmm. because Premier League fans tra- travel in big numbers. Um, that has an impact upon the hospitality industry. But if Brentford were playing, and no disrespect, if Brentford were playing Middlesbrough in the championship, 
how many camera crews would be there? How many journalists would be there? Well, if, if Brentford are playing Newcastle, which is the nearest team geographically, or Leeds United in, in the Premier League, um, every single uh, space for the press will be full. You will have potentially, if you're playing Spurs, a camera crew will rock up from Korea because they want some form of Vox Pops because Son is God over there. Um, and I know when Brighton were promoted, they asked the they asked the local university to do uh, what we refer to as an economic impact report to to see how the the city or the town is is influenced on a on a macroeconomic basis. And they said that the the overall impact is a worth it's worth around about two hundred million pounds a year. Now, part of that is in terms of you've got these young men on big salaries who've just moved into the town and they're paying more tax and they're buying bigger houses and cars and so on. But hospitality, transport, uh, if you've got, if you've got a good um, chamber of commerce, you know, then, then they should be leveraging off it. So, so it it can be a significantly positive benefit. Um, And if you don't take advantage of that, then, then I think it's a lost opportunity, especially for those clubs that, you know, go up, don't spend too long in the champ in the Premier League and disappear. Yeah, just just before we get on to some questions that I had from a response on that I posted on the Brentford forum, I just wanted to quickly just ask you, what do you think about the Ivan Tony situation? Do you think Brentford should carry on paying his wages whilst he's banned? I, I personally do. The, the, the man is a young man with an addiction problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Brentford are quite happy to ke- keep on taking the money from Hollywood bets. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, loads of backlash for that when it when it came out the other day. But you know, I, I actually saw a Twitter poll and it's fairly balanced. A lot of people say they don't care. A lot of people say that they're outraged and disgusted by it. Considering, I mean, it's terrible timing. Um, I'm so, I have mixed feelings about it. Like on one, on one hand, I know he's got a very serious mental health condition. I I read the FA report and it's, it says he still bets on other sports. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the rules are the rules, and he did break them, and he knew about the rules, and he lied about them in the in the interview with the FA. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not condoning that. He, he has been sanctioned. Um, he could have been sanctioned to a greater degree. I, th- I think the admission that he has problems. Um, again, sort of the the football court of Twitter is is a very toxic one. Um, if if you if you've got people in your family or in your friend set who have got gambling addictions or substance addictions or alcohol addictions, you can still love them. They can still be good people mm-hmm. and they hate themselves as well. They, 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 they will do it and then they will beat themselves up. And then, then you've got the self harm and the, the, and the domestic violence and the fraud and everything that goes with it. But they, no, nobody sets out to be a gambling addict, just as the same way that nobody sets out to be an alcoholic um, so I, I've, my, my sympathy lies with the individual. Um, I think reintegration is, is absolutely essential. There's a much broader issue in terms of football's dependency culture with gambling. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not in favour of the front of shirt ban because I think it's just tokenism. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, you've got to look at, uh, you've got to have, got to have a holistic approach to, the, the the damage that that gambling does, and again, for the sake of complete transparency, I've worked with gambling with lives, um, and, and I've been to the House of Commons, and I've met I've met 
the the widows and the children of people who have taken their own lives because that they could not live with their self-loathing, which has been brought upon as a result of the addiction they had to gambling. Um, the gambling companies could do far more. They, they, they do the bare minimum that they can get away with. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. I wrote a piece on it in the in my university publication a while back about you know the the even the adverts in gambling they come across so bloody enticing the, with the language they use, the images they use. It's just and then but just the little tagline at the end when the fun stop stops or gamble responsibly just kind of negates all of the what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, if, if, let's, let's face it. If let, let's face it, if, if I was a cocaine dealer <laughs> and, and, and I was and I was supplying somebody and I said, but when the fun stop stops, <laughs> yeah, if, if I say I, I'd be laughed. That, wouldn't I? Yeah. I'd be absolutely laughed at. Um, I I presented to a parliamentary committee, and I'm not trying to big myself up here. I do lots of weird stuff. Um, I did that about four or five years ago um, because I'm obsessed with numbers, um, and I, I showed the growth in revenues, by, or gross revenues, gross wages of Bet Three Six Five, and they'd gone from. I think the first year was around about 200 million. And the, the total value of the gross wages was 65 billion pounds in a year. Yeah, that's that's 50% of the NHS budget. And I pointed that out. And the other gambling companies deliberately don't show that because they, they don't want people to mm. know just how much money we're spending. Um, and the response of Bet365 was the following year, they didn't disclose that data. <laughs> and you go, well, thanks, guys. Yeah. But... but I know what your margins are, so I, I can you know, I can back entry the numbers. So, so look, I gamble myself. I, I, I buy a lottery ticket twice a week. I uh, I do what, what, I, what I refer to as an emotional hedge in that I bet on Brighton to lose. Um, <laughs> I do the same, don't worry. <laughs> and my co-host Kevin berates me for that. I absolutely understand where he comes from, but uh, yeah, it's. It, it's it's a funny industry because as part of the the work, I, I, yeah, I, I don't actually. I probably place about three or four bets a year. As part of me preparing myself for that parliamentary committee, um, I opened an account with a with a gambling company, and what I found very curious was I placed a bet. Just so happened that the bet the bet won, i.e., Brighton lost. Um, <laughs> And then for the next few weeks, every couple of days, it was, hi, Kieran, this is David from, let's call it, let's call it Hillium Will, shall we say. We haven't we won't mentioned the name of the gambling company involved. Um, uh, uh, and then the next day, hi, it, it's Patty from, I've seen you not placed a bet in a few days. Hey, for a few days, how, how do you fancy 10, 10 free spins? And it's this constant marketing and the projection um, of looks gambling can be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm not not saying that it can't be. And if you want to take you know, a gay out day out at Cheltenham, or if you want to do a do a sixfold acker because it gives you something to do on a Saturday afternoon, that that's fine. I'm not not against that whatsoever. But what you're not seeing is is the dark side of the industry because you only see the happy smiling faces and the and the people going like that when uh, on the adverts what what you're not seeing is you know is, is a man at three o'clock in the morning who's just spent the last five hours gambling on Bolivian yeah. football lost every bet sitting crying in his underpants 
wondering what he's going to tell the wife because he spent this week's grocery. Yeah, I know it's a big, big problem, especially in the UK, uh, betting culture. There was a great piece of The Athletic that Jay Harris wrote. He's come on the podcast a few times. He spoke to Stephen Corker and he said it's rife amongst professional footballers yeah. because they've got so much money. They don't, know, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, it's a massive problem. Um, maybe I might do a separate podcast just on just on sort of gambling and football. But anyway, I've got some... Um, Questions from the GPG for you to answer. Hanworth B asked, wouldn't mind knowing his opinion on our financial fair play state at the moment with our incomings and as of yet, no outgoings and whether that will have to change soon? No, no, Brentford are fine. Yeah, the fact that they made a profit um, in uh, in 21-22, I suspect they've broken even in 22-23. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of flexibility as far as Brentford are concerned. Um, but... I think they, the club is realistic to know that it can't outbid other clubs in terms of wages. So therefore, it's a case of being patient, making the appropriate signings. But yeah, from an FFP point of view, nothing to worry about. Good to know. What Walshy asks, he would like to know your opinion on the potential situation of leaving a £40 million asset on the bench, uh, David Rea, and how other clubs might deal with a similar situation. Um. He's got one year left in his contract, is that right? Yeah, one year left, doesn't it? Like, well, Spurs signed a goalkeeper the other day. United look like they're going for um, Anana. So, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? I'd, I'd play him next season. You know, if, if he's if, from, from the point of view, he's, he's a really good goalkeeper. Um, you might as well let him put himself in the shop window. Uh, David De Gea at Manchester United had a good season last season. I know he, he's, he's taken, I think he's a bit, a bit of harsh stick. Uh, in respect of what happened at the, at the FA Cup final, um, but he ne- he never let the side down. Uh, he was a professional. I'm, I'm, I know how much uh, he, he's asking for. Um, I can understand Brentford turning that down uh, because it's it's not part of the budget. Causes dissent in in the dressing room. If, if, if he's if he's your best goalkeeper, playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't think he'd actually leave now because. Um... As I said, United, United and Tottenham both look like they're going for it. Well, Tottenham have already gone for one. It's weird because we kind of discussed it. We were we were thinking, is there a way that David De- David Ray actually stays at Brentford with all the transfer noise that had been generated by Tottenham's interest and, and Man United's interest? And it looks like he probably is going to stay. But for, I don't think it, it just doesn't really... I mean, we didn't get him for much from Blackburn, but it doesn't fit Brentford's model if every, every player has their price hmm. as, as, the club, as the club state. But... I just, I, I just, for some reason, I just don't think we'd let him go on a three, especially if we value him so high. I know they're not going to meet the valuation of forty million, but you've got to let him go if they're if they're offering thirty, thirty-five. Yeah, oh yeah, and they will, mm-hmm. they will. I mean, if if you take a look at, uh, yeah, again, take a look at the club I support, Brighton. Trossard was allowed to go. Uh, you know, Arsenal paid twenty-seven million. Is is worth more than that in my view. McAllister has gone for a peanuts, Bissouma, but they all were that, that one year away. Um, the, the window's got a fair way to go yet, and it, it, it just needs one shift or one injury in pre-season, um, and then all of a sudden negotiations start. You know, you look at Newcastle with Nick Pope. I think Nick Pope's a really good goalkeeper, but could could you if if uh, if Eddie Howe wants a change of style of football, it could be mm-hmm. you get a call from the big market. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dynamite asks, well, he says that the club in the clubs in the football league have a lot of different financial setups, going from ownerships through different dubious holding companies in islands with unpronounceable names over strange ownerships of stadiums to more clear cut structures with simple assets and liabilities. Which financial model would Kieran prefer in a football club, and which English league club comes close to that model? Um, there are a lot of models that I have to, to deal with, and. For me, it, it, it just goes it just goes with the territory. Um, the ones that I dislike are the ones which have a, a myriad of uh, intermediate holding companies. So, so Palace is a pain in the ex- pain in the backside with Palace Midco and Holdco and CPFC twenty ten and Crystal Palace Football Club and so on. So, so I'm, I'm not not particularly keen on those. Um, there there are you know Bristol City Holdings. That's fine. You know, it's quite easy for me. Sheffield United Football Club, Blades Leisure. If it's only two companies, then then it's fine. Um, it, it's when you get separation of football club from stadium that things start to get a bit uh, convoluted. Uh, there's none which I say are absolute. But well, yeah, one that one that is actually very good is is Reading Football Club. It's, it's a very simple structure, but they've just had. Yeah, they they've been on the embargo list for the EFL for the last six months. Mm-hmm. They're paying two hundred and forty three pounds in wages for every hundred pounds that's coming through the door. They've had a points deduction and a relegation, and they they've not paid tax. Uh, so the the corporate structure, even if it's lean and mean, doesn't mean that the decision making at board level is is necessarily uh, particularly professional. What what do you think about multi club ownership? Just I, just off the top of my head, I, that's not a question. But what do you what do you think about it? It ain't going to go away. Um, yeah, the, the genie's out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know that uh, Matthew Benham, you know, you've, you've got links in Mitchell Denmark. Yeah. Uh, Brighton got links in uh, in Belgium, although Tony Bloom's just reduced his stake. Uh, provided it doesn't impact upon the integrity of the game, and and, and this this is this is my concern that when we move, you know, UEFA. I think have made a, a forward step with what they've uh, insisted at Aston Villa and Brighton in terms of their owners. That though, um, I can see problems arising if, and this is a big if, if the thirty-two team FIFA World Club Cup becomes a thing, mm. then you've got the City Football Group, which has got clubs in practically every continent yeah. where there is a chance of more than one of those coming up. And, and then yeah, they're only going to play each other once every four years for four weeks. What do you do under those circumstances? And, and I'm sure what, what will happen is that Jenny Infantino will blame the Western press and say that there's not a problem, but that's not dealing with the issue. <laughs> I think that would be a good way to, to wrap things up. We've got all the questions done from the GPG. Uh, that was a pleasure. That was that was really fun. Thanks, Kieran. Um, well, thank, the, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, the Ealing Road podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for a live episode at the Griffin. So stay tuned across our socials for that. I'm just trying to get a date sorted out. But yeah, follow us on Twitter at the Ealing Road to, to stay up to date with that release. Uh, if you guys haven't listened to the podcast before, please subscribe to both our YouTube and Spotify channels, which can be found at the Ealing Road podcast. And also leave their rating as it helps us out massively. Also check out Kieran's podcast, The Price of Football. Uh, it's becoming a weekly listen for me, I must say. Great content from you guys. So yeah, Kieran, brilliant guest. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Have a great season.
Social Podcast Network.